Good morning, beloved. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25 this morning. Again, the passage this morning is Luke chapter 1. We're going to be examining verses 18 and 25. Please do stand when you have that. Hear ye the word of the Lord this morning from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the day, and people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord God, we do come before you this morning, praying that you would grant to us a measure of thy spirit and of good faith, to be able to receive and comprehend the implanted words which you have given us today. Father, give us instruction by thy word. Encourage us and strengthen us in the inner man so that we may be able to do all that we can to live holy and upright lives in this wicked age and to uh, await uh, your glorious appearing that is yet to come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's message is the allure of unbelief. Earlier in the gospel narrative of Luke, we were introduced to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. These are the parents of John the Baptist. One of the things that we learn about them very early on in the narrative, in Luke chapter 1, examining verse 6, that they were both righteous before God and walked blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. God had chosen this couple to bear a son named John who would be the forerunner of our blessed Savior, the Messiah, even Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom belongs all the glory. And in relation to this narrative of this righteous couple, we are then introduced to the scenario in which Zechariah, being in the temple, is confronted with incredible news. The news that though he and his wife be old and barren, they would conceive a son, a son of promise. That though in their old age, they would see the providence and salvation of the Lord in delivering them a child. And yet, how does this man, Zechariah, a member of, uh, of the priesthood, who is currently serving in the midst of the temple, offering sacrifices and incense to the Lord, and he receives this grand vision from the angel Gabriel, how does he respond to this message. Remember, he's blameless, 
He's righteous, clearly a man of faith, clearly a man of dedication who's in the temple serving God. If you were to expect a miracle, it'd probably be while you were at church, wouldn't it? Where else would you expect a miracle? If you look at like uh, uh, any, any action movie, for instance, and the hero always finds himself in a church, and he's, he's looking for a sign, he's looking for, for a miracle. And here you have Zechariah in the same scenario. He's in the temple, he's serving God, and he's looking for a sign. And lo and behold, a sign comes. Notice what it says in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, after receiving this word, his response is telling. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Notice how he responds. Not with joy and thanksgiving, not with praise and worship, but instead he makes the strategic error that many of us make in our lives, and it's asking, and it's making the error of thinking that God is required to give us the answer to the how and the why. You see, though Zechariah was blameless and righteous, he meets this incredible word with skepticism, with doubt. Lord, how can this be? I'm an old man. I don't have what it takes. I don't, I don't, I, this is not natural. So, so, so how are you going to do this, God? How will you accomplish this? You see, the right response for the believer, when God says he's going to do something, it shouldn't be how or why. It should be yes. Because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And yet Zechariah, though a righteous man, though a blameless man, responds with a question showing his doubt. How shall I know this? How shall I know this? Now that's, on the surface, a very reasonable question. Again, Zechariah is an old man. Elizabeth, an old woman. Barren. How could they have a child? How will God do this? How will God accomplish this? It's certainly reasonable to ask the question, how will this be? Or how should I know this? Yet, it delivers a stunning admission when the question is asked that there's a lack of faith in the providence and goodness and grace of God. You see, all things are not for us to know or to understand. But when God speaks, we're to receive it with faith. We're to receive it with thanksgiving. When God says he's going to do something, we best believe he's going to do it. And not to meet his providence or his declaration with fear or with trepidation, but instead we receive it on the basis of faith because he said he would do it. Now again, his answer, though Zechariah is righteous, he questions, you can write that in there in the insert in today's teaching, he questions or doubts the veracity of God's promise. Again, God is not required to give us the answer to the how and why 
of his good plan for humanity and for us. And Zechariah refused, point blank, <coughs> in the story here, to believe the message that, come, that came from the angel Gabriel. Again, notice what it says, uh, trekking back a little bit in verse 13. The angel said to him, to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and he will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord. And Zechariah is like, okay, that's cool, but wait a second. Like, how? How's that going to happen? Like, this sounds great on the surface, Gabriel, but, but I know I'm a, I'm a natural man, and I'm an old man, and I, and I, I don't see how this is going to work. I don't see how, 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 you're gonna be, how God's going to be able to do this. Or, or if he does, I, I want insight into that. I want to know. The angel in verse 19 answered him, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. When God sends His messenger, when God sends His angel, his, one of His most special angels, Gabriel. You know, there's only two angels in the Bible that are named. One is Michael, the archangel. Uh, Daniel refers to him as one of the chief princes. And then you have Gabriel, who is also named in Scripture, and he is mentioned as being that angel that stands in the presence of God. And so only two angels are named in Holy Scripture, and Gabriel is one of them. And his position is one of great importance, as he is the one who stands in the presence of God. He is uh, an angel of great significance and of, of importance. And so when Gabriel comes to deliver a word, you better believe it. You better receive it. And you better know it comes with the stamp and approval of Almighty God. Gabriel is one of great uh, importance in the narrative here. And he is also the one who will bring forth the good news to the virgin. That the virgin will conceive. That the virgin will be with child. And later on we'll see the difference between how the Virgin Mary receives the word from Gabriel and how Zechariah, a man who is mature, a man who is wise, a man who is blameless, a man who is righteous, how he receives this word from Gabriel. Elizabeth also receives the word, not directly from the angel Gabriel, but from her husband as she sees the providence of God in the bearing of a child. But to think for a moment in the response that Zechariah gives, and comparing that for a moment with, the, with what the Virgin Mary will uh, soon in the narrative <coughs> respond with, you see two different responses to the same messenger. One, again, a mature man, a man who, who, who is blameless and righteous, who doesn't really respond the way you would think, with faith, with joyfulness, with thanksgiving. But then you have a young woman a virgin who's about to get married and she receives good news from the angel Gabriel. And she gets the news that she will bear a son who will be the Savior of Israel. 
Now, her life circumstances, very different than that of Zechariah and Elizabeth. She is not old and barren. She, in fact, is young, so young that she's still a virgin. Elizabeth and Zechariah are married and old and established. She, young, untested, unverified. And she is about to get married. And she's about to receive the biggest news of her life, that she is with child. How does she respond? Not with, okay, God, this, how? This doesn't sound right or natural. How is it that I will be with child? No, that's not how she responds. She responds with what's called the Magnificat. She praises God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She met the word from Gabriel, the word about the Savior, with joy and thanksgiving. Zechariah on one hand, a man who's got it all figured out, a man who's wise beyond his years, a man who serves in the temple, he doesn't meet the same message and messenger with the same response of faith, joy, and exaltation of the true God. Again, Zechariah refused point blank to believe the angel. And his question is nearly identical to that which was asked by Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 8. But it is asked in a very different spirit. Essentially, Zechariah, the man who is righteous and blameless, it amounts, his response amounts to a demand for a sign. He demands a sign. You would think that he would know better than to do that, than to ask for a sign. And yet, that is exactly what he does as he questions, doubts the veracity of God's promise. Therefore, the angel Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, we want you to write that in there if you haven't already, Gabriel, who stands in God's presence, was sent to declare good news. This is fantastic in that we know that from the very presence of God comes good news. Do you believe that? Do you receive the good news that he says not only through the mouth of angels, but even from the mouth of preachers who preach the word of God, that this is indeed good news? Do you believe that? Do you receive that? That the gospel truly is good news. And it comes from the very center of God's heart. At the center of God's worship in His throne room is the essence and the flow of all good things. From Him and to Him are all things, especially that which is good for His people. Because God is good. Amen? And all the time, God is good. We'll get you there one day. We'll get you there. But God is good. In every way imaginable. Therefore, that which comes from his presence, that which comes from his throne room, is good news. And he's delivering it through his messenger. The word angel in the scriptures, angelos in the Greek, simply means messenger. Sometimes we uh, look at that word and we think of an ontological creature. And it can be that the word is used ontologically to some degree. Uh, but oftentimes it's more of a statement of a job description rather than an ontological statement of being or creature. In Scripture, men are called angels. The Apostle Paul is referred to as a messenger, as an angel. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about the messengers 
uh, of the churches, which I would interpret to be the pastors or elders of the church, not to be literal angels. Uh, we also see other times in Scripture where anhelos, or the, the, the Hebrew equivalent, is used uh, to describe human agents or human messengers. It's really a description of a, a, a job description, a title description, more than the ontological description. But here, this is clearly a, a spiritual being, Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. This is an ontologically spiritual being who is being sent from the throne room of God to declare good news to Zechariah and soon to the Virgin Mary. And it says in verse 20, notice the response and the consequences of Zechariah's questioning and unbelief. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days, the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. The consequences to unbelief is the silencing of unbelief. You see what God does here through the angel Gabriel? Is he meets his unbelief by silencing his doubt, by showing him that it is Yahweh who has mastery, power, and authority even over the mouth. Even over the mouth. It reminds me of the story that we see in Exodus chapter 3, where Yahweh reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses. And as God reveals himself, he says, I am that I am. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. And Moses immediately begins questioning, saying, God, I don't think you got the right man. Uh, you, you do know that I've got like a speech impediment. I, I've got all these reasons why I shouldn't be the guy. And what is God's response? God responds by silencing, by silencing the criticism of Moses. By saying, do you not know that it is I who made the eye and the mouth to speak? That it is God who has authority and mastery over all the senses of being able to see, hear, and speak? He silences his doubt. And Yahweh, through the angel Gabriel, does a similar thing to Zechariah. He, he silences him, literally making him mute so that he cannot speak. So he cannot even, even declare now. He's no longer even fit to declare this good news of his mouth. He must be silent in contemplation. I've seen movies and depictions of this scene. If you've seen nativity movies or films, uh, you, you see how, how uh, he becomes a mute and he just begins to, to, to use his hands to speak and to try to write things down. And one particular film, uh, it, they ask uh, when the child is born what his name would be and he writes it out and he just puts a piece of papyri up and it says, John, that's going to be his name. Because he couldn't speak. We don't know what that would have looked like and what exactly or how exactly he would have communicated uh, well with others. But this is the point that the angel is making by making him mute. Is there's a consequence for unbelief. There's a consequence for unbelief. You're following along in the teaching. Zechariah is made mute for his unbelief. 
Notice again the reason it says in verse 20, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because, here's the reason, you did not believe my words. These words that came from Gabriel weren't from Gabriel, they were from God. They were God's message. They were God's good news. And they were not received with joy and gladness. And And the angel Gabriel says, These which will be fulfilled which will be fulfilled in their time. God meets unbelief by silencing unbelief because His promises are sure. They will be fulfilled. Brethren, let us not fall into the same temptation, the same allure, the same uh, place of unbelief. It's easy not to believe in the promises of God. It's so easy. I mean, let me me tell you, it's easy even for me to doubt in the promises and providence of God. When life is happening throughout the week and we're not in the constant uh, grind of of prayer and worship and, and the study of the word and temptations arise and problems arise and issues arise, it's so easy to be like a grumbling Israelite in the wilderness looking back fondly to the slavery of Egypt. It's easy to think it was better over there than it is following the promises. The allure of unbelief is a powerful thing. It is a powerful temptation to think that God, who spoke by various means, but has in these last days spoken to us by means of His Son, that he will not be true to his promises. But let me assure you, dear brother and sister, that God has not forsaken his promises. Therefore, be assured of this truth, he has not forsaken you. He's not forsaken you. And it's usually in the depths of our pain, of our own misery, either by sin or the consequences of someone else's sin, that we tend to look at the promises of God and and what He has said would happen and what He has promised us in His Word and we begin to depart from it. And we begin to doubt it. We begin to doubt the goodness and providence and hand of Almighty God. But believer, He is the one who has promised, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. You see, even in the discipline that God gives to Zechariah, he is by no means rejecting Zechariah. He's by no means forsaking Zechariah. He is demonstrating to Zechariah his love, his goodness, his kindness, even while he disciplines him because it is said in Scripture that God disciplines the ones he loves. See the discipline of the Almighty as a gesture of love and kindness as it truly is. As Zechariah is now learning the hard way, being made mute for his unbelief. Having now to live life uh, more difficultly, uh, in the more difficult circumstances. Uh, several years ago, I was preaching on a Sunday, and, uh, and I can tell that my voice was like, like fading. Um, and, uh, and for about a week and a half, I had completely lost my voice. Uh, and, and I'm trying my best. Actually, this happened a couple of weeks ago, too. Uh, back in October, I was losing my voice as well. 
more so a couple years ago when this happened, I had completely lost my voice. And I remember getting calls from church members and, and it's the most, it was the most difficult thing ever to try to be like, <laughs> I sound like a mummy on the other side, like I was dying. And I couldn't, I had text them and say, I really can't talk. I've lost my voice. And trying to communicate with them was almost impossible, especially when you're needed for various things. It's very, it makes life very difficult when you can't speak. And here you have Zechariah, who's a priest serving in the temple, who has many duties and responsibilities. And he certainly uh, now has made life a lot more difficult for himself by means of his unbelief. Now, I don't know why God took away my voice that time. Maybe it was unbelief. Maybe it was just laryngitis or something. I don't know what it was. But we have to remember and trust in God's providence and God's hand and God's goodness that even when we're made mute, even if we're made blind, even if we're made deaf, God is still on his throne and he's accomplishing his wonders even in the midst of our great difficulties. And God was still at work in Zechariah. God was still at work in Elizabeth using them as the as the agents to bring forth John, who was the forerunner to our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. And so do not be afraid of the consequences that God will bestow on us for our unbelief. Rather, let us try to meet unbelief with faith. Let us try to remember that even in the difficulties of our circumstances, God's still at work. God is still sovereign. God's still on the throne, and God still has not left us nor forsaken us, even as we see in the circumstances surrounding the situation with Zechariah. It says in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. What an interesting scene that must have been as, they, as, 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 as Zechariah rises uh, from out of the temple and maybe like a madman waving his hands and trying to communicate what God has just done in his midst. And that's sometimes the way that we look like as Christians, waving our hands like fanatics to the world and the world trying to figure out what exactly are you trying to say? One of the curses of disobedience, dear brother and sister, is that oftentimes that which is clear becomes unclear. That which is a gospel of clarity sometimes gets lost in the confusion of our own circumstances and of our own hang-ups. You see, the gospel is a message that is quite at its foundation simple and pure. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, refers to the gospel as pure, simple. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. Of, it's, a sim, it's a simple message. We are sinners. We are sinners through Adam. We're sinners through our actions. And God has sent forth in the fullness of time the Savior, born of the Virgin, to die the death that we all deserved, live the life that we could not live, holy, perfect, and blameless, died on the cross, and was raised again on the third day. It's a simple message. And that all those who place faith in Him, in the ascended, risen, victorious Savior, will have eternal life. That's the gospel. Yet, because of our own unbelief, 
because of our old sin, because of our old hang-ups, we often complicate this most beautiful, pure, and basic message. And we end up looking like Zechariah, like a fool sometimes, waving our hands in the air, trying to make sense of the simplicity of the good news that's been delivered to us. So consider for a moment your responsibility as a Christian, your responsibility to live before God as a messenger, as an angel of the Lord in that sense, one who brings forth glad and good news, who brings glad tithings about the Savior. Do not overcomplicate the message by a lack of obedience and by a lack of faith. The message speaks for itself, but it speaks all the more clearly when we live it out authentically as Christians in this fallen world. Live authentically to the message. Live authentically to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints so that we do not become like those crazy fanatics who have to wave our hands up in the air but instead with true faith and sincerity declare the simplicity of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That being said, notice the response that we see from Elizabeth in this scenario. In verses 24 and 25, it says, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. See, Elizabeth had not had a direct encounter with the divine. She had not had a direct encounter with the angel Gabriel. And yet, notice her response to the conception of her son John. Thus the Lord has done for me. She recognized the hand, providence, and work of Almighty God. She knew that in her barrenness, in her circumstances, God was working. That God was at work in her life, in her circumstances. Thus she could declare, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. She recognized that God had not forsaken her. Sometimes in life, doesn't it feel like God's not even there? That God's not even watching? That God doesn't even care? It's real easy to fall to that trap of thinking the Almighty does not see me. Of thinking that God does not know my circumstances or my pain or my sorrow. God met Elizabeth in that place. And she saw and recognized that God's eyes, that God's goodness was still on her. And specifically, she says, to take away my reproach among people. Why would there be a a reproach upon her? Scripture opens up in, in, in the narrative that her and her husband were blameless and righteous. Why would there be a reproach on her? Why would there be a reproach on their marriage? The reproach likely stemming from the understanding of the people at the time that barrenness was a sign of a curse. That if a woman could not bear and conceive a child, that that woman was considered cursed in the Old Testament. And we see time and time again where God reverses that. And he reverses that, uh, that, that, that preconceived notion. And he brings life into barren circumstances. 
starting with the very story of our patriarch, Abraham. If you have a moment, please turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17, <clears throat> starting in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Again, notice the response here. Abraham can't believe it. God is speaking to him. Yahweh, the God who spoke stars into existence, speaking to this man. And yet, he laughs and, and cries, how can this be? Do you see the similarities in the narrative? And how even Abraham and Zechariah both have a similar response here? And it says in Abraham, uh, in verse 18, and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ishmael being the son that he had with Hagar. Being the son that he bore naturally. You know, when, when God gave him the promise the first time. But Abraham, the sin of Abraham and the sin of Sarah was that he, they thought that God would accomplish the promise by natural means. That God would accomplish it by means that they could comprehend that they could tangibly touch and feel and understand. And that was their error. That was their sin. Therefore, they brought Ishmael into the world. And God says, that's not it. That's not it. It's very similar to when evangelicals today, eschatologically speaking, when they start to say, uh, Pastor, did you hear there's going to be a red blood moon soon? And, uh, and that, 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 that must be the sign of the rapture. That must be the sign of the second coming. And I said, if you can Google it and find out, then it's not it. Because that's natural. When God breaks into the world, it's going to be supernatural. And that's what God is doing here in the story of Abraham. It's what God is doing in the story of John. It's what God is doing in the story of Jesus. He's breaking into the world supernaturally. Not by natural means. Not by natural expectations. And that's why he looks at at, at Ishmael and says, no, that's not the son that I promised you. The son I promised you was a son of promise that was going to come by means of Sarah. That was the promise. And he goes on to say in verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. 
He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. You see, the promise is not dependent upon natural means or expectations, but upon the sovereignty and goodness of Almighty God. God was not deterred by the natural outcome of Ishmael. Instead, God even used it for His glory and for the advancement of His purposes. And yet, what was the promise that He made was the promise that He kept. When God makes a promise, believe it and receive it because it will come to fruition just as He said that it would. This is the difference between operating in the flesh and operating in the Spirit. You see, Abraham and Sarah for a moment operated in the flesh. They thought that the, natural, that the natural means would be the way by which God would accomplish His purposes. But no, dear, dear beloved, that's not how God often accomplishes His promises. It is by His supernatural hand. We have a supernatural God. Now, sometimes that word might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but that's the nature of the God that we serve. He supersedes the natural order. He supersedes our expectations. He supersedes everything that we can think or imagine. So how will God accomplish His work today? Well, by ordinary means, as we learned today in the uh, catechism teaching, there are ordinary means by which God has made. But let me also frame it this way. There's nothing ordinary about the ordinary means. There's nothing ordinary about it. That God has ordained these ordinary means for us through the preaching of the word. That God is accomplishing his will, his purpose for humanity through the declaration of the gospel with weak and feeble men. There's nothing ordinary about that. That God, the sovereign of the universe, hears our pleas and our cries through prayer and thanksgiving. There's nothing ordinary about that. That we can have communion with almighty God and speak to him and we're heard by him. That's not ordinary. That's extraordinary. That's incredible. That's a blessing. God is at work in us and through us and for us for the advancement of his kingdom. And this is what we see as the promises for us today, beloved, that God is at work. He's at work in you. He's at work in the church. He's at work in the kingdom. He's at work in the nations. He's at work every single place that there is to be worked. Everything that can be seen, touched, and comprehended, even beyond those things, God is accomplishing His great pleasure and His will for all things to work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Therefore, let us remember and receive with great joy with great thanksgiving, that God is at work. Therefore, let us reject the allure of unbelief. Let us come around similar to how Abraham and Zechariah and Elizabeth and the Virgin Mary will eventually, in the narrative, receive the good news of Jesus Christ with belief, with faith, and with joy. God made it clear to Abraham that he was establishing his covenant in the world through Isaac, that God would accomplish this. Matter of fact, the very name Isaac means laughter. Both Abraham and Sarah laughed 
at the prospect of having children, of having a natural, of having a, a child born to them uh, at such an old age. And yet, God accomplishes his mercies and his will even in the midst of laughter. And he uses laughter itself as he names Isaac for that very purpose, so that his covenant should be established. God has given us now a new covenant, a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, a covenant that is sure, that will not fail us, that cannot be shaken, that will not be deterred. It is a covenant that is signed and has been purchased by the very blood of Jesus Christ. It's that very same covenant that regenerated us, brought us into the family of God, and it's that very covenant that we're about to uh, partake in and, and not just memorialize, but spiritually partake of here at this table. And so help, we, with God's help, we can overcome the allure of unbelief and trust in him. And as we come to this table this afternoon now, we're reminded of the promises that are yet to come. The promise of our future glory and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. For we are to partake of this table until he arrives. For the last part of the teaching, Zechariah and Elizabeth are a parallel to Abraham and Sarah. And the parallels that are being drawn is that both Zechariah and Elizabeth are an old age, and yet a promise is delivered, and yet disbelief is met with the delivering of the promise of good news. And even in the midst of disbelief, God performs the miraculous. So may you trust even today all the more greatly, all the more closely, the goodness, providence, and sovereignty of the God who's at work. Let me pray. Blessed Savior, we are weak and feeble. It is so easy for us, Lord, to fall into despair, to fall into unbelief, and to be enticed by all that unbelief brings. But Lord, as we have this sure foundation written in Scripture, as we get to look at all these great cloud of witnesses that have come before us, who also met your promise of skepticism. Help us, Lord, to learn from their faults and help us, Lord, to learn from our own faults and to trust in your sovereignty and your goodness all the more as we wait for the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who through the blood of the eternal covenant has given us an entrance into this new and a better way so that we may have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Spirit, and fellowship with the brotherhood so that we may not depart from that good promise, but instead, Lord, that we may get to enjoy it all the more, even as we come before you at this table. Lord, bless us as we endeavor to live more godly lives, as we endeavor to draw near to you so that you may, not, so that you may indeed draw near to us. Lord, we pray, God, your blessing over all the things that you've done and will continue to do in the midst of your people. Help us again, Lord, to reject the temptation of unbelief and to have our faith firmly rooted in you the fountain of living water. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.